I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. It's the conclusion to episode 22, and in it, Grant McMillan and I talk about just about everything. Fear Itself, Green Lantern, our comic picks for 2012, John Byrne and Doc Doom, Darren Aronofsky and Black Swan, and Aaron Sorkin and Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. In short, a little bit of something for everyone. Actually, considering this episode's an hour and 45 minutes, it may qualify as having a lot for everyone. Let's just say, if you wanted a podcast where the term white power Odin was thrown around and a debate breaks out about the history of Manwolf, this may be the podcast for you. I hope you enjoy. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. Hi. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to see how long I can wait. I know, and then I'm like, oh, he's doing that thing again. And then you actually said, at the same time. That's Welcome just... to 2012. With each new podcast, we advance a year. Which <laughs> through. I'd say 2011 was a great year for comics. Uh, I particularly loved DC's stunning decision to make every comic 72 pages long for $12. It seemed controversial at the time, and yet now that we have the four DC books that are continuing, I think we can agree they're leaner and meaner than ever before. They are. As are the creators, very, very lean and very, very mean. Well, the idea that Dan DiDio had for basically taking the best of each creator and then creating Deathlock-style cyborgs really brought out the best uh, for DC as a company. I agree. I agree. There was a little slight problem there where the Jeff Johns 9000 declared a secession from the DCU with all of his titles. Thus... Implement. Wow, was that him in the background? Is he like in there with you? Because that's kind of yes, terrifying. Jeff Johns is here beside me. He's uh, our new guest uh, as part of the new segment of Wait What? The yes. Jeff Johns Hour. In which case, we'll just spend an hour telling him how great his work is and asking him how many permutations on Green Lanterns fighting themselves can he come up with for his continuing run on the title. I, I have to say, isn't that Green Lantern more kind of like sort of look? kind of like a downer like i'm very impressed like how it does it does look like a downer but it also as one who does not interestingly follow the main green lantern book but does follow the peter tomasi Mm spin-off it is something they've been setting up so i'm interested Mm -hmm. to see where they go with it Hmm. I, i guess for me it's just like one of the things i appreciated about the sinestro core and even the whole war of the lanterns like it looked like they were by folding that yeah, folding that into Blackest Night sort of like it sort of ha- it sort of dodged that inevitable like you know whenever you had more than like two Green Lanterns you know around for more than six issues it seemed like inevitably they were going to start fighting so I kind of was bummed to see this sort of turn of events like oh really that's where they're going with it now I, I'd be more bummed if it wasn't like two months long mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean like I, I think it's relatively short. Yeah, that, uh, that is pretty good. And I, I I, fully expect, like, they'll be left with, you know, the lingering suspicions that means that they all have to stay to their own books and they don't cross over anymore. But, uh, you know, I don't think any of them are going to quit being Green Lantern, so they could just be, like, a hissy fit. <laughs> now, see, if they just called it, like, hissy fit Green, Lantern, Green hissy Lanterns, <laughs> I would be all over that. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that, that, that's 2012. Yeah, that's right. The Green Lantern sissy slap fight. I'm it's like called Emerald Hissy. It's it's Emerald Hissy. <laughs> it's, very, um, it's great. 
<laughs> I'm also looking forward, because uh, as we know, 2011 saw Fear Itself, the latest and I think it's fair to say greatest Marvel comic event that is tenuously tied to what's going on in the news. And I'm looking forward to 2012, even more Fear Itself. This time it's more fearful. Yes, that's right. This time the fear is personal. Which I this think... time he is in the house with you. Oh, there we <laughs> That'd be great. The call is coming from inside the crossover <laughs> event. That would be great. There's a tagline for you. This time the call is coming from inside the Avengers Mansion. <laughs> you know, you're right. Like, we spent all that time talking about all the new stuff, and we had yet to pish-pish about fear itself. I wonder if uh, I uh... Did you hear the uh, map fraction word balloon interview where basically he gave fear itself a much better launch than marvel did by just saying what the book's about as opposed to being like fearful it's very fearful it's very fearful right now we're being political fearful and he actually said what the story was and i was like oh i might read that okay tell me as opposed to like all of marvel's it's plotted basically this asgard used to have a god of fear Mm mm-hmm uh, until the God of Fear and his followers decided they were going to uh, overthrow Odin. Mm. So Odin not only banished the God of Fear, he pretty much killed off all the God of Fear's followers. Uh. The God of Fear has been forgotten until he's discovered by the new Red Skull, who is the old Red Skull's daughter, Sin. Right. Um, and she brings him back. The with the God of Fear is the more afraid people are, the more powerful he is. So he said he and the Red Skull set about making people afraid so that he becomes stronger and bringing all the worst nightmares of the Marvel superheroes to the Marvel super Marvel superhero universe. Hmm. So you know, sure, that's that's that to me is a better sell than everything they they were trying to do with their like right. video event, which was just like, we've got the series, it's by Matt Fraction and Eminent, and it's very timely like Civil War, which pretty much all these ads. You know, I have to say, like, wouldn't it have been awesome if, like, the Red Skull had brought back Odin, you know? Like, and be- because of the whole ties between the, the you know, Nazi Aryan movement and the, the worshipping of the I, yeah, Norse gods. Yes, but, but that would not be clean and show you who the heroes are supposed to be in time for the movies. Well, yes, exactly. Which is which is why I can sort of see, like, there's a way in which it's reconfigured, but the whole idea of, like, yeah, Red Skull's going to bring back Odin, and because he does so, like, Odin comes back at, with kind of, like, that kind of crappy white power sort of, you know, like, it gives Thor something to actually fight against as far as a father issue, you know, because the the idea of your... But at the same time, it's my fraction. Did, have you seen what um, Iron Man 500 is about? Uh, no. You'll love this. I laughed out loud when I found out. <laughs> it's actually a flash forward featuring Iron Man versus his son. I'm not joking. Didn't I call that? Yes! <laughs> That's why I laughed. I was like, oh my god, Jeff Lester is recording the podcast from within that fraction's room. <laughs> Get out the calls coming from within Fraction's beard. Uh, also, the, yes. um, it's uh, it's Iron Man's granddaughter, but she's also rebelling against her father because oh, it's an it's a it's a, an extra size issue with extra size daddy issues. <laughs> Please tell me they're marketing it as that because that would be awesome. 
Sadly not. That's why I should be working for Marvel's publicity department. Well, you know, I thought there might have been a chance, because didn't you say, like, one of the Thor ones, promo things, was like, and you thought you had daddy issues or whatever? It's even Norse, it's something like even Norse gods have daddy issues or something like that. Which, according to Fraction of the World Blue, he he didn't know it said that. (laughs) He he was like, oh, that's funny, I didn't know that. And you could tell, he was, like, there's a little bit of, huh. 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 That's interesting. So, um... So, yeah, so that's what Iron Man 500 is about. And apparently, to hear Fraction talk about it, mm-hmm. the whole deal is he wants to show you the end of the story so that when you flash back, you know more than Iron Man does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hey, wasn't Batman 666 really good? Yeah. I wasn't going to say... <laughs> well, 666 or even, even those last cut five pages of Batman 700? Well, no, I was meaning 666 because that's the one where you see Damien and he gives you all the clues about the three Batman for the next couple of storylines. Well, that's true. Yeah, I guess that's true. I was also thinking of that, that end where it keeps flashing into future Batman, where it seems to me like very thematically tied to that, you know, the, to the start of Batman Incorporated. And But yeah, Batman 666, you're right there. Oh, dear. Yeah, I kind of had that thought, too. Although... Yeah, well, but you know, it, it's I'm sure it'll be awesome. Good yes. luck, though, is what I'm saying. Good luck. Indeed. And also, honestly, uh, hearing what Fear Itself is about, as opposed to just someone telling me that it's great, yeah. uh, who knew that might work in making me interested? I know. I think that is kind of great that you're like, yeah, I may check that out. i also very excited. Uh, well, not very excited. I won't be picking it up. But I'm very excited by the whole alternate, like, yeah, yeah, White Power Odin. Yeah, and Thor, like... <laughs> you're, excited, you're excited about your version of the book. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, why not? And then I'll, I'll harshly critique it when it doesn't live up to my imaginary standards that are already are <laughs> off. Exactly. Premise. I thought this book was about White Power Odin, and it turns out it's about another god of fear. What the fuck is this? False marketing, that <laughs> <by> fraction. <laughs> Really, really bad. <laughs> That's what we should do from now on. We should look at like the title of a comic and just like imagine a story and then we come to that and be like, what the fuck? <laughs> that would be pretty great. I don't think that Archie and his quote unquote friends uh, ever hook oh, up in this book. I, I, I read Archie 616 last week for Declined. Oh, yeah? The, the uh, Barack Obama Rebellion Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Archie comics are weird, man. <laughs> like, there's something really, really specific about an Archie comic mm-hmm. that both hasn't aged at all, like, has not developed, uh, and has. And it's it makes for the really, really oddest reading experience. You, you have to run out and buy an Archie comic. <laughs> It's really, really odd. I can't describe it. Well, I definitely know after hearing about what Mike Oslan was doing with the Archie stuff, with the whole Archieverse, the the thing was really kind of amazing. I don't know where they continued to go with that, but um... I, that's that's like got a whole new series. There's an ongoing series. Wow. Called I think it's called Archie: The Married Life, which honestly to me sounds like a reality show. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's a split book, and in half the book he's married to Veronica, and half the book he's married to Beth. That's the one where they're killing off um, the teacher. They're killing off one of the teachers? Yeah. 
because it's the future and it's an alternate reality, so they can do things like that. And they're going to kill her off, and there's going to be like, I, it's going to be revealed. This, this is where like alternate futures. You have to remind the readers that it's alternate and it doesn't. It's not foreshadowing. Right. They're going to say like she's had cancer all along. <laughs> Which suddenly makes, like, all the present-day RG series kind of depressing. Right, yeah, exactly. It's suddenly so much more poignant than you'd ever had conceived of. Like, oh, who knew that Jughead had a brain tumor underneath exactly. that hat the exactly. whole time? But, um, yeah, they're, they're going to kill off the teacher and show her funeral. They've actually released art from the funeral already. Wow. Man. And do you, know, do you know who's drawing that series? Norm Breivogel. Do you remember his Batman stuff from, like, Yeah, 20? yeah, exactly. I, yeah, detective and a whole bunch of stuff. He's been doing Archie stuff for a while, though, hasn't he? I think he has, but I, I was kind of like, he was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I believe, well, I, I guess I can believe that he's he's been reduced to Archie, but it's kind of sad. He was he was really good. He was great, but I mean, there's that whole perception of what's hot or what people want to work with or don't want to work with. I mean, you, you see pages. Like, some of these guys don't necessarily have quite the chops they used to. Some of them they're they're still they've still got it it's just they you know the perception in the marketplace is, is that people don't want it yeah it's kind of sad but mm-hmm. there you go so i say like good on him if he's if he's yeah like, if, hey if it's regular work i'm happy for him yeah exactly so um how did we get onto this tangent this time Dude, I don't even know. Like, the call was coming from inside Avengers Mansion, and then after that, it was all just a wild ride. I think I think I asked you about Fear Itself, and then then somehow we ended up back on Archie. I uh, yeah, I, I, for crossover I, events, I I don't, I don't know. The, the great is, thing is the God of the God of Fear is mm-hmm. actually um, Chuckhead. Oh, that would be great. Someone on the CBR message board, and I honestly can't remember why I was reading the CBR message board, came up with a spectacular fear itself theory that I really hope is true and I would almost lay money is not. Okay. That the current, oh, the most recent Marvel God of Fear was Ares' son, who's mm-hmm. called Phobos. Mm-hmm. The new God of Fear, the, the retconned Asgardian God of Fear, is Demos. Those are the names of the two moons of Mars. Right. And so... Fear itself is the Mars invasion story that they've been teasing, uh... and that at some point in Fear itself, the, the Martians from War of the Worlds, Kill Raven series, uh-huh. will invade, and that the whole God of Fear thing is a fake out. Right. Right. Huh. That is a MacGuffin. Again, I don't really think they'll do it. Mm-hmm. Because it's ridiculously convoluted for a seven issue series, right? Um, but it's a great idea. I love the idea that, like, by issue two of Fear Itself, they will have defeated the God of Fear, and he'll be like, "Oh, yeah, I'm just a cover story. Here's some Martians to completely fuck you up." <laughs> I, lo- I love that idea. Also, I, I love the fact that the, this this commentator's name I can't even vaguely remember, like, put it all together like that. Yeah, because it does make sense. If those are the names of the gods of fear and they're Mars's moons, sure, it's the Martian invasion. I completely, I, I believe that. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, that's actually pretty brilliant. Um, well, maybe there, maybe there will be some sort of permutation of that. You know, because we we keep seeing the Martians. Mm-hmm. We keep seeing the hints, so you know, it's possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or you know, I mean, it sort of seems to make sense that if they hadn't. If they hadn't spiked this event one way, like, 
like I could see it where the Martian invasion was just an attempt to instill large scale amounts of fear, just like the original War of the Worlds broadcast. Which, which it might be. I mean, who knows? Well, but in that case, like Marvel, which, you know, I wouldn't put it past them, would be do, would be hyping it wrong. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, see, hype cause, it cause as... what it reminds me is of um, is DC's Blackest Night reveal. Mm-hmm. Where they're like, zombies, 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 zombies. Oh, actually, there's a god of death. Right. Do you know what I mean? And they actually kept that pretty quiet. Mm-hmm. People were like, is Necron in this? And they're like, who? No, what? But like, like they did keep it relatively quiet until mid mm-hmm. the series, and I think that's something that really worked for Blackest Night. I was actually thinking about Blackest Night again recently. Blackest Night for me worked so well because it did, in a much clumsier way, admittedly, but it did what Scott Pilgrim did mm-hmm. in the end for me, which it said, oh, "This is your expectation. This is what you think we're going to do. Here it is. It's not what we're doing." Right. And don't get me wrong, Scott Pilgrim fixed it so much better. But yes. Blackest Night did the same thing. Here's Hal's the White Lantern. Oh, he's not the White Lantern. You know, mm-hmm. here's uh, all the dead coming back to life. Oh, no, that's not really what they're after. Yeah. You know, they, they kept doing that. And that, mm-hmm. I think that's, that really made the event work because every single time you're like, oh, they're doing this, it'd be like, not really. Right. And well, I think yeah. that's what you need from something that size. Yeah, exactly. Is you actually have to kind of structure it uh, like you would like a movie or a story where you've got the the turns and the reveals and the and the fake outs. Um, you know, I just love the idea that they were originally going to do it as you know the Martian War or Secret Mars War or something like that, and they went, "Eh, no one's really going to go with this. Let's go for the fear itself thing that was actually supposed to be behind it." You know, it's like we'll we'll just you know. <laughs> It's like those trailers that give away all of the movie. Well, well my, my whole thing about Fear Itself is that Fear Itself might be a replacement for the vampires. Because oh. remember, Curse of the Mutants was hyped as this is the start of something that's Civil War big. Right. Right. And even though vamp- uh, Dracula is on the, the Fear Itself promo image, mm-hmm. that doesn't really make Curse of the Mutants the start of anything. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean... Do you know what only, I mean? Only in it's the just, most just like, way, it, yeah. It's, yeah, in the sense of, well, it reminds people Dracula existed, but that doesn't really count. Right. Um, <laughs> so I'm wondering if, you know, basically because Curse of the Mutants didn't sell or didn't have the impact that they thought it was going to, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, we need a replacement event. Right. Well, and maybe that's why all the vampires get killed off-screen, off-panel in that... Uh, in that dramatic conclusion that you recounted it's, to it's, me. It's, it's so wonderful. It also made me wonder, because um, I was rereading, because I'm going to do a Savage Critic post for it probably tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's the counterpoint to my Justice League post, where I was like, I kind of like Justice League. I know, I'm sorry. But it was like, wow, this didn't work. Um, but it made me think, because remember at the start, people were like, how does this fit in with what Paul, Paul Cornell did with Dracula in Captain Britain? Right. The last issue made me think that either they are completely unaware of what happened in it or they're trying to piss him off and his fans off. Because unless I'm horrifically misremembering, and I'll have to go back and check, the Paul Cornell arc was called Vampire Nation. Mm -hmm. And the last issue of Curse of the Mutants features Dracula saying, it never occurred to me to have a Vampire Nation. (laughs) Which is such a clumsy line that it seems like it honestly seems like a fuck you. Oh wow! 
Wow. Yeah. What the fuck is that? That's really because I'm not. I'm not misremembering. Right? Paul Cornell's article was called "Vampire Nation." Right? I am the worst person to ask, but I believe that's correct. Um, Hang on, I'm looking it up right now. As, am I. as, as are you, because I can hear your keys going. Exactly. Uh, da, 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 da. Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, and and Dracula actually says, like, it never occurred to me to vampire nation, which, which like, it's got to be a fuck you, right? It has to be. <laughs> Because <laughs> otherwise, that coincidence is weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no. Sometimes it happens, but it's it's one of those like it's weird and clumsy. Like you're caught in a weird it's, situation. It's weird where... and clumsy. And yeah. considering the number of people who called you out on that story when your arc started, yeah, you would think that even if someone had written that line for the sixth issue by that point, we'd then remove it. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's got to be intentional. Yeah. Oh, dear. It's weird. That's always weird when that sort of stuff goes on behind the scenes. And you're like, really? Like, you're going to go out of your way to, like, to, like, tweak the nipples of the reading public or thumb your nose at the writer of a previous arc? Or, like, what is, like, what's going on there? It just seems very, very weird. It's not gotten as bad as, like... Doctor Doom bringing out Doombots and then shooting them because Chris Claremont wrote them. So, wow, where did that happen? In you don't remember burn? that? Was that Burn yeah, in that like, was, Fantastic that was, Four? That was, that was Burn in Fantastic Four. Of course it was. Yeah, sorry, it took me. Uh, and, and do you know why? Do you know what the, the offending thing was? Why? Why? What was it? Uh, there's a do- there's a Doctor Doom arcade team up somewhere in like I want to say Uncanny One Fifty something, mm-hmm. and during that arcade lights a match by striking it against Dr. Doom. Oh, and for, right. He strikes it off was, his armor, right? I yeah. thought that was so disrespectful to Dr. Doom as a character that he actually has a scene in a Fantastic Four issue later where Doom is inspecting his Doombots, sees the mark, goes, what happened? And Doombot's like, oh, back when I was hanging out with Arcade, he did this. And Dr. Doom destroys Doombot. It's like, that is not befitting Doom. <laughs> like it's like a page or two pages like it's it's not like a one panel joke right it's no like, that that's so funny i uh yeah that that i it's funny i wasn't like my reading of burns fantastic four was really really spotty so i didn't see that issue but i remember the issue that the the cockrum claremont issue like you said in the 150s uh that they're talking about and that's just that's just so absurd you know? But it's it's kind of hilarious as well. But no, this that that this um, vampire nation thing reminded me of of mm-hmm. that anyway. And also now that you, to, again completely take a different tension. Um, in the Marvel solicits this month, I'm mm-hmm. so glad to see that Marvel has seen the light and are collecting John Byrne and Ron Wilson's Thing series. Ah, hey, as, as Thing classic. And best of all, this volume is like all of the pre Secret Wars issues. Wow. You're so tempted, aren't you? You know, the, I I just think that it's great because apparently you've got some sort of pull uh, with Marvel considering there you were talking about them at length and lovingly. For I know, the I know, like, 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 stuff. And then me and lots of other people in the internet are like, I wonder if that means the thing's going to die in that Fantastic Four story. Because <laughs> there's two thing collections, bizarrely. Huh. It's really weird. It's two. Wow. That is kind of weird, isn't it? Hmm. 
Could you? Because yeah. honestly, you can't tell me the world has been crying out for like a reprint of 1984's thing. No, I, I do have to admit that there's kind of a the the great thing is 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 like if ever there was an irrational like crazy person that you could never bet on, it would be Marvel's trade collection yeah, policy. Our, our reprint department is, is yeah. spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, sometimes they do stuff like because that. I mean, sometimes it would be like. You know, if they like bumped off the Human Torch, like what could they collect? You know, I mean, it's kind of like uh, we've got some issues of like Marvel team up. Hey, uh, he had his own solo series for like twelve issues. Oh, back during that whole tsunami thing. Yep. Are you talking about? Yep. Which, by the way, also gives us the Venom by Daniel Way Ultimate Collection, eighteen inch, eighteen issues from Tsunami. That thing ran for 18 issues? Yeah, I was really surprised. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> that's crazy. I had no idea. Like, I'm yeah, like, but, yeah. that, but that's getting a collection as well. Wow. Yeah, I'm telling you, the Marvel's trade collection department, sometimes just crazy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, well, who knows? Maybe maybe Venom's going to die. That would be great. No, no, Venom, Venom's getting relaunched. That, that's why it's... Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I figured. Are, are they launching it as a new? It's book? It's, it's a new ongoing. Ugh. And who's who's writing it? Did they say? Rick Remender. It's the the Frankencastle team. It's Rick Remender and Tony Moore. Oh, interesting. Well, it kind of makes sense. And it, it's Venom as Black Ops for the government. Ah. Oh. With the character they're not naming, but it's going to be John Jameson. <laughs> like it's one of those like it's so obvious in the book itself. <laughs> and they're like, you won't tell you it is. And it's like, I don't know. It's almost like you didn't give us a page where they're like, let's take Venom to the government, immediately followed by a page of Captain America going, you know who the well, government's best test pilot for anything is? It's John Jameson. <laughs> here he is. You've not seen him for like five years, but here he is. He's a really good test pilot. The government give him everything. Then again, I really hope that's a fake out as well. There's Spider-Man fans online who are like, it's obviously a fake out. It's Flash Thompson. <laughs> Which would be great if they're like, here's John Jameson. Oh, he's dead. Oh, might as well give it to Flash Thompson. He's crippled after all. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of a, that that would be a beautiful little swerve. Yeah, um, it would, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I will keep my fingers crossed. Isn't it weird how finally it's like, John Jameson is Venom. <laughs> It, Flash Thompson, hey, tell me more. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, yeah. But I'd love it if that was actually happening in the comic. Do you know what I mean? Like, they give Venom to John Jameson, and mm-hmm. Venom just eats him. <laughs> <laughs> Would that be the greatest thing? Right, right. Well, I mean, again, it's that weird, like, eh, it, makes, it makes some sense. I, I, of course, have, like, enough love for John Jameson based on the old Man-Wolf series that I'm like, ah, I kind of hope they don't eat him, even though he was a... Even though Man Wolf himself was a silly character, they did some awesome stuff with that. Like I, I was rereading um, Essential Hulk Five, which I honestly inexplicably own. I don't own <laughs> any other volume of Essential Hulk, but I own Essential Hulk Five. Um, and in the middle of Essential Hulk Five, they have the Counter Earth story with Adam Warlock. Oh, I love which, that story. Which is like, it's honestly like Lightning was like, how obvious can I be? Yeah. About Jesus. Yeah. I mean, he actually crucifies him. Yeah. It's him, awesome. And then he goes back to life three days later. Yeah. Yeah, and, no, totally. And he's, and he's like, let's not fight. God wants you to love everyone. And I was really like, I can't believe A, you got away with it. B, it took you three 
issues to tell the story. Yeah. Well, as, as I recall, it's it's the wrap up of Warlock's own series that they had launched. Where yes, I don't remember and, if but it was... also Manwolf plots as well. Um, uh, Manwolf, really? Yeah. Is that not where the present comes from? The present and all these animal men do they not come from Manwolf? Because uh, I, I know that Manwolf also got spun off into later issues of the Defenders. Yeah, actually. Yeah. What? So no, is I my understanding is is that they are separate. That. Oh. The, the I, th- whole... I thought they were, I thought it was all connected. No, I I mean, and I could be wrong, but um, Counter Earth, of course, is that Earth that's orbiting on the other side of the sun that we can never see. That of course is just like ours. Warlock ends up there, and I don't remember how the president ends up being the Beast, which may or may not be like one of the high evolutionaries. Like, no, know... he's the devil. Okay. All right, just check it. No, no, but he, that's because he's he's fighting Jesus. Yeah, no, I know he's fighting Jesus, and of course that's the thing that's awesome. And Jesus, you know, in the in the early issues of the series, like, you know, it really was kind of this like really amped up version of the seventies. Like, okay, the president is like is the Antichrist, and he's insane, and there's going to be you know it, it, peaceful it is, college does, war protesters. It makes Steve Englehart look subtle. It does. It totally does. It was like they looked at it and went, ah, you know, I kind of feel like people would might miss the point on this one. So let's come back and really do it in a way that the the true Mighty Marvel manner, so that people really get it. And yeah, and so that's part of the reason why you love Starlin is is that he just took all that stuff and went, yeah, okay. No, I mean you know I'm I'm totally like the Bible's great, but it's no Michael Moorcock book, so that's where I'm going <laughs> from. You know, seriously, oh guys. Internet, if you ever ever wants to make a T-shirt of a Jeff Walsh book, <laughs> the Bible's great, but it's no Michael Moorcock novels. Is the T-shirt you need to make? <laughs> um, but Manwolf was, of course, they found the rock on the moon that bonded itself to uh, John Jameson, you know, and it turned out that there was an interdimensional portal on the moon that was tied to this uh, other, this realm where the moonstone was, what's that? that plot of the new Transformers movie? (laughs) It probably is. I'm not joking. Is the plot of the new Transformers movie not that there's some sort of portal on the moon that connects it to Cybertron? Uh, if there is, awesome. I, I mean, all I can say is, all I can say is, is that you've got George Perez art. I believe it's uh, David Anthony Kraft was doing the script because he did the they he they did the whole uh, Manwolf miniseries. Well, the the Manwolf series and like I want to say it was Creatures on the Loose. Maybe that's not right. And then it wrapped up in two very glorious issues of. Marvel Spotlight, Marvel Premiere. I always get the two confused. Gorgeous looking Marvel stuff. Premiere from the looks of the internet. Yeah, thir- maybe 36 and 37. Is that? I want to say that's what. That's right. Maybe not. Um, it gorgeous, gorgeous work where he goes through the portal and he, you know, has his full intelligence. He's a wolf, but he's like the god wolf or whatever because it's the the wolf stone is. And so, next thing you know, he's flying around on, like, big flying bird-type things and wearing armor and, like, using a sword, and it's just awesome. It's just weird, recycled, Edgar Rice Burroughs-type. And um, then, weirdly, it turns into a Defender story, which is where I really know Yeah, see, and that's the part that confuses me, because I know Ed Hannigan batted was batting cleanup on a lot of stuff that was, like, it's, it, that, But that stuff, I'm fairly sure that stuff's uh, David Anthony Kraft. 
Right. He would bring it back since he was writing it. But I'm trying to... It's weird. I've got this weird blind spot. Like, Kraft left it, like, right before issue 60. So when did he, like, introduce that stuff? No, Kraft left after 60. Really? I thought Hannigan took it in, took it all over right after the whole the defenders go to the Soviet Union and the Red Guardian and Keith Giffen's going nuts on all that like Kirby styled influence stuff and they're fighting yeah. some like giant Soviet crab creature or something. No, I want to say I want to say Kraft stayed on through the at least the beginning or the first part of the Lunatic arc. Oh, and the man. Lunatic arc is the Manuel Park. Oh really? Oh my yes. God! I totally forgot that. I mean, that's clearly the case. that would make a lot of sense because, of course, the lunatic and dollar bill and man wolf that those were all the big David Anthony Kraft stuff that he had going on. But yeah, really, yeah. yeah. So, so lunatic comes because lunatic definitely gets introduced during the Russia stuff. Uh huh. As a as a subplot because Val's not with the team at that point. Right. Uh, and then I want to say there's the first lunatic arc where they take lunatic back to his dimension, and I'm sure that's Kraft. Uh, and I think afterwards, Hannigan takes them back there. Interesting. Okay, like, you know, it's funny. When we talk I, about... I, but I can even tell you, like, what collections this is in. Right. This is all Essential Defenders 5. Uh, five? Well, that's much yeah. later, because I'm actually looking at Volume 3, because I, I went and pulled them out thinking that at some point I would have to get caught up and devil slayer, the whole like blue oyster cult, uh, influence. Yeah, that's, that's all right. It's, no, it's four. Sorry. It's four. Uh, okay. So it's gotta be right after this, which is yeah. sure enough. Here's issue 60 is David Kraft and Ed Hannigan. Oh, Hannigan's doing the art. Maybe that's why I got confused. And he starts writing it after that. Yes. Um, Okay, so he goes into volume oh, when, four. When um, Hannigan drawing it, it's not, he's not drawing it. Oh, interesting. He was never double threat. Interesting, and that's very odd. Her- Herb Trimpey and Don Perlin draw his. Oh, right. <laughs> that, that, that wonderful <laughs> Herb Trimpey period. Yeah, well, and then, then of course, Perlin goes on and takes it over and runs with it well through, I want to say through 100, right? Does he? Because I've not read that. I've uh, like Central Defenders Four is the last I've read, and I thought I thought Demantius took it over after Hannigan left. Oh, oh no, I'm sorry. Yeah, Demantius takes it over, but Perlin continues to draw it. Oh, Perlin continues to draw it for the longest time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, well through I thought a hundred. Well, okay, so I have volumes two and three here of Essential Defenders. It's good to you, know you, that you definitely need four, my friend. Four. Yeah, is, I'm is gonna a, grab four. Well, it's embarrassing because I read all this stuff originally. So again, I mean, I, yeah, I, I really forgetting this is not embarrassing. Forgetting this is a sign of a healthy mind. <laughs> Speaking of healthy and unhealthy, you do realize that we've been talking for thirty-five minutes. And yeah, 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 yeah. Wait, I'm, I'm, but I'm going to get to the, the suggestions now. I am. I swear to God. Okay, I'm. First of all, I'm going to do. The, I'm going to mention the one that we'll, we'll do another time because we do not have enough time for this, and it's a spectacular idea. Okay. Anthony Casaldi asks about our take on Imperial Phases. Do you know what an Imperial Phase is? I don't. An Imperial Phase is the period where a creative person basically can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. And as at the height of their powers, creatively and commercially. Mm-hmm. And 
he wants to know about the three phases, the building up to, the period of being in, and more importantly, the period afterwards. Oh, wow. And honestly, I think we'd go for a long time about that one. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kicking that head tonight's week, because really... Yeah, let's let's punt that I and come back to it. I will say this. I think Grant Morrison's was the late 1990s. Yeah. I, it's... I, I think I think he peaked with the end of The Invisibles. Mm, interesting. I, I want to say that he almost peaked before it, because, I mean... It, the the stage where he was, where it was volume two of The Invisibles and he was writing JLA, that sort of struck me as like the maximum point of commercial success and kind of creative, like the, the creativity was also firing the most on, on all cylinders, I guess, you know? Yeah, because he was doing that and he was doing JLA and yeah. You know, so I, I, I would say that that's going to be it, but I mean... It's a, it's a tough call with Morrison because I think he almost run bec- he's more, he's such a cyclical uh, creator I think because you see things where I I feel like ah that's not working or eh he shot the wad or ah he's not paying attention and then you'll see something like We Three or uh, All Star Superman you know. It, you, God bless, you know, beloved Flex Mentello. I mean, All-Star Superman sold really, really well. Uh, Notice that you've just named his three collaborations with Frank Whiteley. Yeah, I guess that's probably true, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that's I, which, which I think is, is... Not a surprise, really. Yeah, I, I think it's telling. Yeah. I think I think Morrison's honestly going to the point where he needs the right partner for it to work. I think so, and, too. And, and get, it, I think he gets, a lot, he gets the right partner a lot more than he used to. Right. I, Sean Murphy... Uh, Fraser Irving, Cam Stewart, mm-hmm. all great artists. And there really was a period like 10 years ago where Morrison was uh, doing spectacular writing and having shitty, shitty artists just almost continuously. Oh, well, I, I think that still sort of cycles in and out. I mean, you know, Batman R.I.P., Tony Daniels, Tony yeah, but Daniel it's, yeah, has but, some work. But, it's... but at the same time, I feel it cycles. Whereas I honestly think there was a point where it just didn't cycle. Like he would just continuously have bad work. Right. Well... Yeah, but I mean, again, I I feel that there's multiple reasons for that. I think I think Morrison tends to work better in, or rather, you can get him a really good artist if he's only doing, if he's only giving that artist four or five issues. You know what I mean? Which I think is is a way in which that Seven Soldiers, uh, I don't know what to call it cycle I think is, is kind of brilliant because it's set up as all these different separate mini series and so he has no time to really like exhaust or short shift any one artist kind of like you you get some pretty amazing work out of everybody from there um, and so everything holds up surprisingly well I don't know it's you know so I think it's interesting I would actually claim that Morrison is the one dude that that more than anyone else sort of easily escapes that kind of uh, very easy to peg three stages, I think. I think Chris Claremont is another one that would be really hard to, um, because he's been around so long. Like, I would say that, you know, in a way, like, his he peaked at, at a certain stage, but then continued to, like, rather than, you know, his burning out was such a slow, steady, continuous period that he had incredible amounts of influence during that whole cycle as well. 
Yeah. You know, so like Claremont's like post peak period would be more influential and more successful than most guys. Yeah. At the top Entire of period. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, when we talk about this next week, because I really am kicking it forward, because I could honestly spend like two or three hours. Seriously, talking. I'm ready to start going now. So yeah, I agree. We're going to punt on this. Remind me mm-hmm. to talk about male writers versus female writers, not in terms of their actual gender, but in mm-hmm. terms of their um, success. Yeah. Because I know I will forget this. So remind me to talk about that next week. Oh boy. Okay. Internet, I... you're also to remind me. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so the actual things. Uh, Matt Maxwell say, suggests we talk about Nemesis the Warlock. And, okay, it looks nice, but it's Pat Mills, and he's fucking insane. There you go. Uh, there we go. I really am looking forward to... I have the I have the first volume of the collection, the recent 2000 AD collection, on my shelf. Uh, it was something that I've put off reading forever, and finally I'm like, I've got to read it. I've got to read it. And, in fact, at one point, I had two copies on my shelf. Um... <laughs> thanks to a ordering screw up with comics experience but now i'm back to one copy which i still haven't read i would love to talk about it more at some point um but it it will it will not be now okay we shall also punt that one forward exactly uh adam nave is the other person who suggested something and it's not a comics thing oh interesting before we go into this adam nave your fan art is like the greatest thing in the world yes yeah, that was. I, I feel fantastic? we should actually say that in the podcast. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was I was delighted when I saw it and was like, oh my god, Graham has to see this. I no, I, to I have to tell you, I have to tell you. Um, I told Kate about the fan art, and her initial response was my initial response when I saw that Adam had done fan art, fan art before I looked at it. She said, "Someone's done fan art." Is it <laughs> two of you making out? <laughs> I had that moment of terror too when he was like. Hey, I did fan art, hehe, <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit, no. <laughs> but I love the kid. like that was where Kate's mind went. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thank God there is no Jeff and Graham slash fic actually here. But no, uh, yeah, I linked to it. Like I said, I would love to do that as a, a promo piece because it really does. He he, it really looks like one of those pages that a full page ad you would see in a Marvel comic back in like 1988. You know. Maybe that's just me because it's like it's like somehow like in jokey, but is also sort of an outward promo. Like I just dug it. Uh, anyway, his question. <laughs> yes. Not to completely digress. Um, he says, I'd actually love to hear about non-comic novels you've both enjoyed this past year. Oh, wow. OK, you should go first because you're like Mr. Reader. Uh, <laughs> Wait, are you not Mr. Reader? I, first thing, I, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to say, the first thing that comes to mind is not a novel. Uh, I finished Bill Carter's The War of the War on Late Night, mm-hmm. uh, the Conan O'Brien Jay Leno book. Oh, yeah, right, right. Which is really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm thinking of fiction I've read recently that I've actually really enjoyed. The problem for me is I don't actually read an incredible amount of fiction anymore. Yeah, it's tough. There's so much comic stuff out. It's really, like, I've noticed that my my reading of the non-fiction stuff, of, of sorry, of non-pictorial stuff has dropped a little bit, um, and that's why I'm, like, really embarrassed when it comes no, to... No, I, I, I was meaning more like I'm reading a lot more non-fiction prose. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Um, um, right. That's it. Oh, Amy Hendrick. Um, uh, 
okay, internet, you're gonna have to help me with this. The particular sadness of lim- lemon cake. Uh, oh right, you talked about I, that. I love Amy Bender um, mm-hmm. with a passion. I think she's an incredibly good writer. I completely, I, she's not even underrated as much as just people don't really know who she is. Right. Um, particular sadness of lemon cake is not her best. Mm-hmm. I should say that. I think that um, I think her short story collection is generally better than long form work. Um, but yeah, the particular science of lemon cake is very good. I'm trying to think what I would recommend in its stead if I was saying read something else from her first. Probably um, The Girl in the Flammable Skirt, which I think is her first short story collection. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's just... Uh, I'm, I'm a big sucker for magical realism. Mm-hmm. When it's done well, I should say, because it's also like an excuse for little things, you know. He was very sad, and then he met the right girl, and life was wonderful, and then unicorns, which is not really my thing. Um, but she does it really well. She does it really subtly, uh, and with incredible sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, just her use of language is something that I, I completely fall for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, Amy Bender's book was really, really, really good. I know how I'm going to find out what books I've read. I'm going to go and look at my uh, history in the library. Ah, wait, they don't keep that, do they? Uh, I think I can get it. I can get I, it. I, I'm not sure that you can, because I try, well, again, you're... Oh, no, oh, no I can, apparently. Oh, man. Oh, no, I can't. It's not See? available. Yeah. yeah, 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 because they don't do that at the, it, it's some weird thing where it's supposed to, I think, actually protect you. It probably um, would protect me, I just, it, the problem is, I can't remember what I've been reading. Yeah, because I, I, I know I'm the same way, which is why I was looking into uh, Goodreader or um, library thing or a couple couple of different, you know, uh, attempts to read, um, to like I, list things. Because yeah. I'm trying to own less and therefore it means like checking stuff out of the library. And like you said, it's just that whole thing of like. I, I've been rereading lots of Jonathan Carroll this year, um, which I do periodically. Uh, mm-hmm. And as ever, like his earlier novels, I, I find wonderful, and his later novels, I find retreads of his earlier. Right. Um, but I think, I still think um, From the Seat of Angels is just a spectacular book, and I think After Silence is really, really good as well. Hmm. Uh, and I've actually been recommending them to people on Twitter for no immediate reason. People are just like, What book should I read? And I was like, That! You should read that one. Uh, <laughs> I read some uh, Parker. Mm. So oh, did you? Yeah, I realized I really liked the the cookbooks enough to read the the originals, and mm-hmm. I really enjoyed them. Yeah, they're quite good, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're a lot of fun. I I I'm doing them in order, so maybe he again like it gets boring and repetitive later on. But definitely from the first few, I I yeah. really really enjoyed it. Yeah, they're they're really great. At a certain point, I became more obs- like obsessed with like getting my buying them rather than reading them. So. I really trailed off, like, I don't know how many books in, but, uh, you know, it's one of those, like, yeah, i got to go back and read all those, and um, have yet to, so. Uh, Another nonfiction one, uh, mm-hmm. G. Willow Wilson's The Butterfly Mosque. Uh-huh. Uh, which, oh, right. which is her memoir. It's her memoir of, of converting to Islam and um, falling in love, which I really, really, really liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um I liked her. I like Air, uh, and I like Cairo, her, her graphic novel. Right. Um, but I again, I found myself surprised by how much I enjoyed her prose. 
That's uh, great. It, bizarrely reminiscent of Neil Gaiman to me. Hmm. Uh, but Gaiman at his less cute, because I think Gaiman has a sense, especially in prose, to be very cutesy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think she's got that. I think she's got the, the sort of openness as opposed to the, you know, I am a writer telling you a story. Here is a fancy name. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I would... I, 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 I'm sorry for not reading enough fiction this year. I, I feel like everything I'm recommending is nonfiction. Dude, I'm so far behind you, like, it's going to be sort of comical, so... Um... Because I think you're sort of like, huh, I'm having trouble finding fiction. I'm like, I'm trying to think, like, I did read <laughs> books trying, without yeah, pictures in them, right? It's like, like, I feel like just that was an effort. Um, but I do have, a, I, I have been dragging my carcass. You know, it's interesting. There were some people, like a few articles that sprouted up where apparently um, some some anecdotal reports that suggested that that people with uh, dyslexia or ADD were actually reading more on like the iPad or the Kindle, like or even the the Kindle app on their iPhone, for example, um, because there was no sense of uh, size. Yeah, there's you know, no sense of distance left. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So these these guys who were like, yeah, previously I'd never been able to make my way through a book that was longer than like 100 pages. And then I read like The Count of Monte Cristo and like tore my way through all these Dumas classics. And and I really have to – it makes sense because they're like there's no size or anything for them to be put off by. I feel like I'm almost the opposite uh, or maybe there's no almost about it because I have been crawling through Don DeLillo's Underworld for what what is – obviously is the better part of a year um and it's been it's been on the one hand it's been an incredibly rewarding read because i've never before i got the the kindle app for the iphone um and i think i maybe had it before i got the iphone but i didn't really use it i never I would never annotate my books, you know, and I, I just couldn't stand the idea of marking them up or scribbling things in the margins or highlighting stuff. Like I know people who did that because, of course, you go to used bookstores and you find these like, you know, incredibly marked up copies and things. I always kind of thought that it was like interesting, but but I just never my collector's mentality would never let me manhandle a book that way. Well, the great thing with the Kindle app is you can actually highlight sections and you can, like, write notes and things like that. So I've been doing a very slow read, most of which is, you know, the problem of opening a book that also is like a video game portal and, you know, your email and the Internet, you know, all, all yeah, at th- once. Yeah, that, that would be a killer for me. It really yeah. is. I, I often think, you know, I'm just going to, you know do this one thing on my phone and then all of a sudden it's like, or oh, I could check Twitter and my email. Right. It's exactly. like, oh, damn it, where's that last 20 minutes gone? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think it's, it's a real problem. And also, I just like the physicality of books. I like that you can pick up a book and it's there and that's it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. So. Me me too. Although, again, it was getting to the point where it just it was starting to kill my back. Like, there were, there were a list of like four or five books that I'm like, okay, if they get these five books in on the Kindle app, I will get myself, you know, on the Kindle, I will actually get the app and purchase these books and, like, you know, 
because Underworld is a, is a pretty big book. It's not like the instructions, which I just bought, uh, sil- amusingly enough, in hardcover. Um, the instructions is like a thousand pages, and it's this. Oh God! The, <laughs> yeah, it's like Adam Adam Levin's uh, first book. It's huge. Let me see how many pages it is. Because um, I've got it right here. It is. 1,030 pages. And that's, it's... that's too long. Yeah, exactly. No, really, well, and it's... that's too long. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes I dig those longer books. You know, by contrast, I think Underworld is only 700 or 800 pages or something like that. Um, I'm still dragging my way through Underworld. One day I will be finished with it. Underworld I, I... killed me. I tried to start it, and then I literally was just like, no... <laughs> this isn't gonna happen. Well, I can't blame you, and I mean, I'm a, I'm actually a pretty big Don DeLillo fan. At some point, I got hooked, and I've been reading all of his books chronologically. So, this is Underworld is kind of a, the big turning point. I've, I think I've actually read all of his stuff, apart from the pseudonym, you know, stuff he wrote under pseudonyms, um, right up until Underworld. So. It's kind of fascinating to me. I, like, I'm sort of like, I feel like, okay, but I can do this because I'm primed and I'm a fan. What I find fascinating is, is you know, for me, there were books, DeLillo books, that he used to be one on, one off for me. Like, I would really dislike one, and then the next one would be great. And then the next one would kind of miss the boat, and then the next one would be better. And then he hit a stage where I thought, like, after he and his wife went to Greece for a year, and he came, he wrote came back and wrote the names like he's got a tear of like four or five books that i thought were all fantastic i guess apparently some people don't like mao too which i thought was amazing like probably his most best distilled book up until that point so i'm diving in on underworld and i'm really fascinated by reading reading it this slowly is and being able to write notes and have theories and you know, I feel like I'm picking up the themes very clearly. Of course, as it goes on, he gets really uh, unsubtle with what he's doing in some ways. But at the t- at the time, I'm like, oh, I think maybe he's doing this and doing that, and seeing everything emerge, I'm like, wow, this is kind of a really immersive experience. Like a lot of the larger books that I've plowed through, whether it's Infinite Jest or um, Gravity's Rainbow, you know, or, or uh, Robert Roberto Bolanos. Uh, 2666 which is a monster of a book there's a point where like I have to kind of like wrestle with how much I'm getting it and how or or really how little I'm getting it and how much of that is the book and how much of that is me Underworld is very much this book where it's like the good DeLillo book and the bad DeLillo book just jammed together and currently I'm just I'm going through sections that I find just insufferable and not in a I don't get this kind of way, but in a wow, I think DeLillo shot his wad. Like he's reading like a parody of himself halfway through this book. So but do, but do you think he's gonna pull out? Uh in the book or in his career? In the book. Um Because that book's the size of small country, Jeff. He could he could it is. He could cycle through multiple periods of shitness and then come back out and be fine. Yeah, no, and he very well may. It may just be that I'm at the part where I, I think that it's terrible, and yeah, and then he'll come back to the good, the good book, I guess. You know, 
Um, I, I don't know. It's a really tough tough call to say for me because maybe other people would think that um, the stage that I'm reading about isn't nearly as lame as I actually think, you know? But mm. I, I really, like, there are parts of Underworld that are unbelievably prescient, and it's hard to believe that it was a book that was written during the 90s. Um, why, don't, why can't you just go to Wikipedia and there's a list? There we go. Right. Um, Underworld came out in 97, which is kind of amazing to me because it's such a... As with all of DeLillo's stuff, it has such the post-9-11 ambience to it, you know? It's, mm-hmm. it, there's just a classic obsession with, like, terrorism and uh, urban living, and, of course, the World Trade Centers always seem to feature prominently in his books, you know, as something that's usually very ominous uh, and tied to terror. So it's it's kind of kind of amazing, but considering looking at his work after Underworld is the body artist Cosmopolis Falling Man and Point Omega like Cosmopolis I read and I thought that it was a minor book it read like something that he might have written back in the 70s and Falling Man I only made it about a third of the way through and stopped reading so this may be it it may Underworld may be the the thing where for everyone else, DeLillo's fine, but it may be the point at which he's finished for me as a, as a writer, mm-hmm. uh, where he just has... He, it's not so much that he doesn't have anything to say anymore, it's that he doesn't... Because he, I think a lot of people would complain about DeLillo even up to this point, is kind of that he was saying the same things just in slightly different ways. But I always thought he had a new, brilliant tact to think about how celebrity and terrorism, for example, seem innately tied together, or how uh, American middle-class American privilege like ties an- innately to a sense of you know paranoia and loss, you know, um, you know, which are things that again you like you say all that stuff, and it's like yeah, any you know anybody who's been in you know in a college literature class is going to you know tell you that those are not exactly new ties but sure but it's, it's i was going to say when you're saying like he's just seen the same thing with slightly different spins i think that's the important part is you can right. you can repeat your topic mm-hmm. but what you're actually saying can be entirely different do you know what i mean like i feel that it's it is all to do with the way you approach the theme as much as what it the content sometimes Agreed, and I, and I think most I would I would gladly say that most major artists, for the most part, tend to say like tend to tackle the same themes over and over again because they're obsessed with them, you know. And you can look at Morrison. Morrison uh, is a fine example in the comics world, where the things that he returns to, uh, he's very cyclical in his obsessions with things. It's just he comes up with new and and really brilliantly interesting ways to to talk about them in a new way. And then, of course, you know, sometimes that ties really well to the story and sometimes it doesn't, you know. I mean, the the idea that, you know, Grant Morrison is talking about a, a magical, you know, the idea of magical initiations all the way back in the mid-90s in The Invisibles, you know, and then he's basically putting Batman through one, you know, 10 years later, 15 years later is, is kind of a, is an amazing process to see play out, you know? Yeah. Um, so DeLillo, I think for me, it's just a stage at which I think, um, 
I, I just I just kind of feel like I'm not going to get much more from his work. I'll continue to check in. Like people really seem to be gaga about Point Omega, um, because he was so far ahead of the curve. I can see where the stuff that he's doing now just feels, um, you know, resonant as opposed to prescient. But unfortunately, I'm just not feeling the frisson of uh, of challenge from his work. Like halfway through this underworld, I'm like, seriously, there are there are sections. I'm never going to be as good a writer as Don DeLillo, but I feel like I could have turned out two or three of the chapters that I've read already. So. Um, I don't know. So anyway, so I'm reading Underworld. I'm reading it very slowly. Uh, another thing that I've read after going to New York and hearing her uh, read next to John Ashbery is uh, Anne Carson. Uh, I'm reading, uh, if not winter, Fragments of Sappho, which is very brief. Um, and her, her recent, you know, kind of amazing sort of translations because she's a, a classicist um, of, of rereading uh, the works of Sappho and trying to figure out ways to, to, to bring the poetry back into it. And then I started and didn't make it very far through before I put it aside, but was fascinated by it. Economy of the Unlost, which is her a series of her lectures about the, the, the work of translating and especially how translation ties into, as far as I can tell, into literally into the economy. Um, she, she's looking at words um, in, in the Greek and how they become these, these words in our modern usage tied to economy uh, and, and what that means. Like when you talk about a, a translation being economic, uh, you know, as what what exactly does that does that mean? You know, when we talk about something that's so elegant that it you can use the terms of um, capitalism and mercantilism to refer to it. So it's very kind of highfalutin abstract stuff, and it's uh, I really loved it. I wish I wish I wish I knew where I put the goddamn book. <laughs> <laughs> what wait was the name of it? Uh, that's called economy, uh, economy of the unlost. I, I think I find that's to my library because that sounds most interesting. Yeah. And Carson, I think you would, you would quite enjoy, uh, reading her stuff because she's got just a, a really delightful, um, a delightfully direct, um, like that weird sort of classicist prose that can be like deeply witty, um, because it's so dry, it's like almost straight faced, uh, mm-hmm. and so the humor in it just seems like, like, kind of almost uh, vivid at, at, at an almost uh, hallucinatory level. It's kind of kind of great. It's been um, added to my list. Fabulous. Um, yeah, I actually really need to you know pick up some of the stuff. This this would be a lovely goal for me in our far flung future of 2011 to kind of get through Underworld and then just kind of get back into to making my way through a lot of different books because um, you pick up so much more. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's a great thing about when you read is that it informs the rest of your reading. So there, it it does help you bring a fresh eye to anything that you read. Well, I've I, I found a, a real value to reading multiple books and multiple different types of books at once. Wow. 
Um, probably never more than three. <laughs> but like the last time I did it, I was reading um, Greg Rucka's last novel, The Last Run, which is Queen and Country novel, which is also very good if you like Greg Rucka and or Queen or Country. I have, right. I have no idea whether that is like a thing for people. Um, the Bill Carter War on Late Night. Mm-hmm. And God damn it, what was the third book? I can't remember what the third book was, but uh, it was over like the course of a weekend. I would just spend like a couple of hours picking one of them up. It was it was the horrible flooding weekend, if you remember the horrible flooding weekend. Yes. Um. So I pretty much did that while sitting beside a sub pub. So fun. Um. But it was it's really good. It does it really inform my reading. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. if I was like, well, this is a bit heavy. I'm going to go to this. You right. know, that's light enough. I can jump back into this. And the fact that I mean the Carter book is really good. But the card book is also really easy to drop in and out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that really helped. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, the rock, I, I pretty much, like, I, that took larger chunks of my time. Right. Because it's very much like a fast-paced thriller. And, you know, it's like, if you stop the chapter, you will lose the momentum. And you won't feel the same when you jump back into it. Right. Well, yeah, there is something about those nonfiction. Like, I remember reading that oral history of The Simpsons, which I just tore through. But it was so easy to just put down and pick up you know? have you read the oral history of snl that came out a few years ago yeah yeah and that, that was that's one the same that I really loved yeah that was the same it's it is very easy to just jump in and out especially when you know the material they're talking about yeah exactly exactly um yeah no that stuff i mean that was the thing that was so sad was i believe that oral history of snl came out before sorkin did um you know Studio 60 yes. on the Sunset Strip or whatever. So it's like if you you read the book and you're like, oh my god, all this amazing material. And then when you hear Sorkin's like doing this series, it's like, oh sweet Jesus, like he's got so much stuff that he can run on. Like this is so amazing and fascinating and complex. <laughs> and then he just didn't. <laughs> no, not not even a little. It was just like, what? Oh, you. Why I Ah, yeah, exactly. Oh, Aaron Sorkin, you little I. Um, which is which I can't, is I keep meaning to rewatch that show. I, I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix instant, so which means it probably will be rewatched. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm really curious to see what it looks like on a second viewing, because I was one of those people who like went through the entire show just wanting it to get better. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, like. Even when I knew there was like two episodes left, I was like, maybe he's going to pull it out of the end, stick it in. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if you remember. Did you watch it all the way through? No, no, I didn't. I think I, I dropped off. Like, remember that like two part episode where John Goodman's the judge and it's that whole thing where like the one dude was pulled over for speeding and he didn't want to say it, but he was like rushing off to see his brother who was being deployed that's, to Afghanistan. That's, that's what I was going to say. Like, that's the end of the show, I'm fairly sure. Because he what? ends with a three-pointer. <laughs> or like, where he knows he's where he knows the show's getting cancelled, so everything comes ahead, and theoretically this one night. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just... It's a mess. It's like, it's like it's stunning to watch someone who's who did The West Wing, and did The West Wing so well for four years, mm-hmm. then do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it really was like, wow... What right. the fuck happened? Yeah. And well, it's one of the reasons that why Social Network was so surprisingly good as well. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing Social that's Network amazing. is just like, oh, you, you've got, you've done it all right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it kind of made me think of, like, maybe Sorkin should stay away from TV, because we ended up seeing, uh, have you seen Charlie Wilson's War? 
Yes, which is really good as well. Yeah, and that's Sorkin like doing the script, and I'm like, I'll be a son of a bitch. That's like, you know, it's it's not as good as uh, as the Social Network. Um, I think probably because the director and, and and of course the talent, the talent in Charlie Wilson's War is kind of a, a battle uh, uphill for me. I think because um, I don't care about Julia Roberts and I am totally burned out on Tom Hanks, which leaves. Who Philip Seymour Hoffman to carry it? Is that who's in, else is in it? I, I want to say it's him and Emily Blunt, and I might just be remembering Emily Blunt for like two scenes. <laughs> <laughs> she she might be in it more, in which case I don't, you know. Um, but uh, you know, I, I I was like, this is this is this is like, you know, meaningful. It's telling me something that's interesting. It's actually an entertaining movie. Like it's everything that it's. It's what you're supposed to be doing when you're seeing a quote-unquote good movie. And it was amazing to me that it came out so um, so relatively recently after you Studio know, 60, yeah. 60, yeah. And in fact, the thing that kind of drove me nuts about Studio 60 is I remember that very first episode where the Matt LeBlanc's character is like, you know, being nominated for an Academy Award or something like that, and then gets a chance to come back and write for the show because his life's fallen apart because of the... No, he wasn't the one with the drug usage. Anyway, he ends up coming back to the show, and and it's kind of this thing of, like, wow, it just read, like, such uh, self-insertion fanfic. Like, yes. it really was, like, 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 this character is, like, so clearly being the Aaron Sorkin Mary Sue for this series. Um... And the thing that's kind of amazing is, is then it's like, well, you know, on the other hand, Sorkin did turn around and get, you know, nominated for an Academy Award for Charlie Wilson's War. There's no doubt that he's going to get nominated for The Social Network. I think that's pretty much a given. Uh, and so he's he's got he's got the chops to actually back up his Mary Sue fanfic. He just could not do it in Studio 60, though. And it was fascinating to watch somebody whose instincts really shouldn't work in other situations um, you know, be right there and then wrong in this case, like sort of disastrously so. Um, it's kind of amazing seeing somebody actually recover from that kind of huge mistake. You know? Studio 60 just strikes me, or at least struck me at the time, like I said, I really want to rewatch it, um, as his ambition just far outstripping his ability. Mm-hmm. I, and with such speed as well. Because didn't Which he is, write all of them? Uh, he probably did. I mean, but it, he wrote less episodes of those than overall than he did of The West Wing, I would think, before he left. Yeah, but right? he wrote... He was on The West Wing for four years. Yeah, well, that, I guess that's kind of <laughs> what I'm saying. Is, is like, didn't he write all of the first season of The West Wing as well? I don't think so. He might, he might have rewritten the majority of them, but I'm right. really sure he didn't write them all. But um, I don't know. It just, Studio 6 just struck me as like... The pilot, he was like, great, starting off, and then, mm-hmm. like, immediately hit, I don't know, some sort of wall. Like, immediately, right. the second episode is a massive drop. Yeah. Well, because I, you know what I think, is I honestly think that his, part of it was a lot of the other things that they said of, like, well, he's, like, you know, he's writing comedy, but he's not really writing comedy. Like, he doesn't know, like, the Saturday Night Live format and that kind of thing. I think what struck me about Studio 60 is is that it was clear that 
he while he was making the West Wing, you know, for years before it, he doesn't whatever he was doing, he was so not watching the show. Like, you know what I mean? Like he's like creating the West Wing and he's constantly working on it. It's like he couldn't lift his head out of the books to see everything else that's going on. You know, like it was really hard for me to watch Studio 60 and believe that the person who had created it and was writing the episodes had actually ever worked on a TV show before, much less the TV show, you know, the Saturday Night Live TV show. That was a gimme, but it was just there were just levels and levels of it of like, okay, Sorkin vaguely remembers what it's like to work in the theater and is transposing it to the TV environment. But I think it's pretty clear, like, when he was doing The West Wing, he was working so goddamn hard, he clearly was not hanging out, like, shooting the shit at the coffee table, you know, which is where I think all the drama would be happening on a show like Studio 60. So he keeps going in for these big, like, this is where the cultural war is now, and it's being fought on the lines of... Studio 60, and I'm like, not even close. Like, not even, like, not e- not only is that not anything, like, again, it's, you just see all those beautiful, beautiful anecdotes about Saturday Night Live just being thrown, like, right into the fire, because Sorkin's got, uh, Sorkin probably didn't read that book either. Like, his, his research was very much like, you can't tell me how to, like, I know how a show works. I was, like, on the West Wing for years. I can write this. There's an endless number of things. Yeah, yeah but the problem with Studio 60 was also that it for, it wasn't about a TV show. Like, it should have been, but it wasn't. Right. For Sarkin, it was about the culture war. Exactly. I mean, so, so Studio 60, the show in the show, mm-hmm. wasn't a comedy show. It was, like, the most important thing on television that everyone believed it was the most important thing on television. Right. Which and just so, makes and so, no like, sense. It, d- it didn't make any sense, but as soon as he committed to that, mm-hmm. like, it just, the whole thing just became ridiculous. Because it, you couldn't have had believable drama from that point on. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. You can't have believable drama, and yet he kept going to it. He couldn't even, uh, yeah, it was just, it was such a clusterfuck. There were so many, like, bad choices there. Um,. And really, I, it's it's fast. I have to say, Studio 60 was so terrible, it has kept me from watching The West Wing. Um, which I'm honestly thinking, like, Edie and I are talking about it, and it's like, we might start... I think it's all on Watch Instantly. We were thinking that we would start watching The West Wing, but... You uh, know, have, you, have you seen it before? Mm-mm, no, no. I, well, I saw part of... I saw, like, 15 minutes of an episode, like, you know house sitting for somebody once it seemed okay you know and i know there are people i have friends whose opinions i trust who just adored the show while it was coming out i i I would say watch it but i'd also say stop in season five stop as soon as sarkin's off because the first post sarkin season is stunning a stunning drop in quality right um and it never really regains it never really picks itself up from thought like it gets slightly better but right. um, there's just moments where you're just like, I can't believe the people who are now writing the show have ever actually seen the show. <laughs> <laughs> and and well, all, all for that matter, like, I actually understand how government works because... Wow. And I'm not going to spoil... Oh, I mean, I'm going to spoil it, but it doesn't really spoil anything and you're not really going to make it this far anyway. The, um, the communications chief 
in the, I want to say, sixth season, mm-hmm. quits being the communication chief and becomes the chief of staff. Because that happens all the time. What? Uh-huh. Sorry, she's not even the communication chief. She's the press secretary. Oh, man. Oh, it's Allison Jenny's character yeah. or whatever? Yeah. And it's like, there's no way in hell that would ever happen. Ever. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, it's just, it's just moving sideways. I'd like... You know, they're like, oh, she's finding this new job stuff. And it's like, no fucking wonder. (laughs) (laughs) And then by the end, they're like, you know, she's the greatest chief of staff we've ever had. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I have to admit, I was not planning on watching it past the Sorkin stage, although it was fascinating reading about the ongoing train wreck that that sort of the series became. Oh, just seriously. The only reason to watch it after Sorkin leaves Mm -hmm. is like clinically to see all the mistakes that get made. It's right. the only reason. Right. Which is, which is the fascinating thing about TV. Like you mentioned the, the whole, like didn't even know how government works. I remember watching the second season of twin peaks because it's something we mentioned on Twitter, which really was such a enormous drop in quality. And it was that thing of like, these were people who had been with the show the whole time, but they just couldn't nail the tone. If it wasn't David Lynch or it wasn't Mark Frost, like they had like plenty of talented directors on there and some really talented uh, writers, and they could not nail the tone to the point where it was so bad. It was like it, it was hard to believe they'd ever watched the show. Like it, it, Twin Peaks, the second season of Twin Peaks. Some of those episodes seem like if somebody was hired to create an episode of the show after being told about it in a bar, you know, like it wasn't even close. So I do find that's fascinating when, when TV, like the, the, the thing that I think always shoots TV in the foot for the most part is you get somebody who is talented, who can create a unique tone and it, and it's so personal that they have a difficult time like recreating it once that person leaves or gets overextended. Yeah. You know? And and yet it's it always happens. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like it, it always happens. It, it's yeah. very strange to see. And it, you almost. I mean, I was I was going to be completely talking to say you'd almost think that TV studios would real like would would build something in for this, right? Would so that people don't get burned out, or people don't leave, or, or you know, mm-hmm. if someone leaves, then there, there's a way of replacing without it being this gaping hole. Um, but that's ridiculous. Like, why, why would they do that? Well, or even how, you know what I mean? Like, it's very hard. Like, you'd have to have huge, huge, huge bonuses because, because the whole system is so skewed in such a, uh, in such a way. Like, you can't, it'd be, are you still there, Graham? I am, sorry. I put myself on mute so I could have a glass of water. Oh, okay. I'm like, curse you. <laughs> All of a sudden, it was like dead silent. I'm like, oh, we lost the connection. So, um, I, well, I have to say, this is really impressive. Like, we are once again, like, we crack the hour mark. I'm not sure if we actually, I guess we did talk about comics at the beginning, but I'm like, Lord above. Um, Wait, like, okay, quickly, before we wrap yes. up. Yes. What comics are you most looking forward to this year? This that year being mo- 2011. That I'm most looking forward to. I'm looking forward to more volumes of Yatsuba. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on 
whatever Brandon Graham does, multiple warheads. I actually am looking forward to more issues of uh, James Stucco's um, Orkstain. Uh Walking Dead is kind of a perennial for me. Like, I feel like that's one that I should have really put on the list. Um, I don't know how much longer Brubaker has on Secret Avengers, but that book is fascinating to me. Um, I just caught up on, like, read the last... In a good way, because I haven't even picked up Secret Avengers. Yeah, I I think that Secret Avengers is fascinating, because I think I told you, like, that first arc didn't do much for me. This second arc is kind of amazing. Like it's got the, it's got the Nick Fury LMD from that Defenders story, you know, <laughs> issues forty six through fifty. Yes, yes, he brings back that Nick Fury LMD, the one that was beside Scorpio. You know that? Uh, oh, I'm I'm telling you. Sometimes I think the Rubik are literally just like read all the same comics that we did. <laughs> Yeah, I think so too. Because I'm just like, oh my god, how can I not love this? Like he's like he's at the current stage where he's you know he has Shang Chi is uh, brought him in because of course the the current plan of the um, the the Serpent Empire is to bring back Fu Manchu. Uh, it's tied into this all this stuff with the Serpent Crown, um, and then there's this other secret thing that's going on there. Um, so it's. Like currently, it's right at the stage where it's like uh, it's like an Avengers comic, but it's also like you know a, a pretty decent master of kung fu ca- comic, you know, with bits and pieces from uh, Brew Baker and Fraction's Iron Fist run. It's kind of it's one of those weird things where I'm like, why am I not just flat out loving this? You know, because it's really it's enjoyable, but it, it it's everything that I would kind of want in an Avengers comics like. Nova, the Nick Fury LMD, you know, Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu, and, like, you know, people doing, like, heavily, like, Dan Day-style influenced, like, layouts. How can I not be loving this? And, in fact, it's 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 really good, but I'm not really loving it, and that, which ties into the, some of the stuff we were talking about in the previous installment. That being said, I'm really eager to see where it goes and sort of what happens with it, um in the coming year. I'm hoping that he's still on it. Frankly, you could do worse than to pick it up, I, I think. Um, but I think, I think honestly, I don't think that you would appreciate it if you were buying it. But like, I, I, it, when the trade hits the Portland Library and you pick it up, I think you, I'd be really curious to know what you think. I have to tell you my complaint about the Portland Library. They don't have Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four, which really surprised me. Oh, interesting. That is surprising. My goodness. So... Huh. Library fail, even though library has been successful with everything else in the world. Yeah, I was about to say, library has been crazy. Um, if there's another volume of Empowered... See, I had all this stuff that I was going to talk about <laughs> before <laughs> all these other things came up. Because I read Empowered Volume 6, and that was a really, really weird read. Like, really odd. So I'm kind of curious boots? to see. Honestly, like, not weird, terrible... But yeah, I mean, well, here's here's the thing. It's I, I, not I, I, terrible translation. It's kind of terrible. It's kind of terrible. No, 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 no. I, I think what it is is see, here's the thing, like uh, empowered, like I'm always kind of just a, like like uh, on moving toward like, yeah, this really isn't working for me. I don't think that Warren's really like 
He's doing a great job. Like, this is his stage, and he's going to make it work no matter what. And then he'll do something which will totally pull me back in. So, like, Empowered Volume 5 ended up being, like, a pretty remarkable book, I thought. It, you know, had this huge, like, it all built to this one big story. He brings, like, it really felt to me like a very odd riff on Claremont Claremont X-Men, and even Claremont Burns X-Men, where he brings these, you know, characters out, this one character um, who's a telepath, who's been having a relationship with uh, Sister Spooky, one of the secondary characters, the the quote-unquote bitch character. And, you know, you see them sort of, you see their relationship, you get a sense of it, and then there's this huge threat, and heroic sacrifice, somebody dies. It's like right out of the Claremont playbook. The next volume, Empowered Six, the one that comes out, is, I think, perhaps sensibly supposed to be kind of the fallout volume, where kind of the same way that you have a the idea that a character has died and you're going to have these reverberations that are felt through the rest of the characters. Um, but it's like so drenched in death imagery. Like you literally have a picture in Empowered Volume 6 of two characters having sex while the Grim Reaper sits next to them with a boner. <laughs> and it's wow. like that's an actual image. Like, you know, because they're the whole idea of like they're reaching for passion in the shadow of death. And in this case, literally the shadow of the boner of subtle. death. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's it. The whole volume is not subtle. There is a character that shows up that is an eno- like an enormous giant figure with a with a 20-foot sized human skull tied to a rope. And so it's it's like a death metal album come true where this super villain just shows up and this enormous skull will crash through a ceiling and crush somebody to death. And then you find out that there's this entire like so many of the superheroes in the empowered universe are characters that have sold their souls to the devil. And so consequently even after they have died their bodies come back from the grave and there is this supervillain that is essentially finding those characters, harvesting them, and you know, killing them and then using their undead bodies as slaves in their super ground lair. And it's unbelievably dark. And it really is like there's part of me that suspects as one does when superheroes are like undead and put into the service of, of unending slavery, that there's some sort of very coded work for hire criticism going on, you know, Mm -hmm. and, or it could just be like somebody who read, you know, maybe Warren read Blackest Night and went, man, you know, honestly, if you're going to do zombie superheroes and you're going to say that you're going to be quote unquote dark, here's how you do it. And so you have empowered and this very fragile force of her allies try and make this like daring, you know, assault, you know, in the super powered lair, which seems like all but like at the entrances of hell. And it's, it's pretty grim. And the thing that's, I mean, you know, it doesn't end with everyone being murdered and massacred, but there was just something that was so dark about it that I really, was reading it, like, just reading it, turning every page going, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. This is amazing. 
but also kind of like this is unbelievably depressing like i am not enjoying this experience at all like it really is just like giant burning lamb skulls on every other page it felt like to me you know and that's the other phrase that should go on a t-shirt it's just like giant flaming lamb skulls on every other page if ever a phrase summed up 2011, because remember, this is 2012. Of course, the far-flung future. So wait, was I supposed to say which books I was looking forward to for 2012 then? Now I'm very confused, Graham. Well, as you know, now that it's 2057, I think you should really talk about 2058. <laughs> so how about you? Do you why don't you tell me what books you're looking Oh, and Batman Incorporated. I have to say I'm looking forward to Batman Incorporated. Yeah, I really enjoyed the second issue, and I, I like the... You know what surprised me about the second issue? The hint I haven't is, read it. You haven't? No. Oh, never mind then. I was going <laughs> to say, it might be as a spoiler. Uh, <sighs> listeners, there's something I really enjoy about my conversation, that I'll probably get outside after Jeff read it. Um, <laughs> let's see, what am I looking forward to? I'm also looking forward to more Brandon Graham. I really think um, that uh, multiple warheads, should it appear this year, will be spectacular. Really looking forward to Dave McKean. Mm-hmm. Uh, um Let's see, what else am I looking forward to? Uh, in a really weird way, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes after Brightest Day, even though I think I already know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm definitely curious, although not optimistic about Fear Itself. Right. Uh, although I'm curious about it from like a completely wonky standpoint. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to see its sales, I want to see how it does its spin-offs, and I want to see if it is such a rip-off of um, Sinestro Core and Parallax that Jeff Jones could justifiably just weep. Um, <laughs> I have to say, the fact that no one in DC, when Fear Itself was announced, tweeted or made any sort of comments along the line of our heroes fight fear every day, they don't need a miniseries about it, was <laughs> remarkable. Yeah. It held back really well. For a story yeah, that yeah, is pretty yeah. much like, hey, have you been reading Green Lantern last few years? Well, you probably don't need to read this. I mean, yeah. <laughs> You know, Chaos, no, I agree. Chaos I War agree. was pretty bad, considering Chaos mm-hmm. War essentially is Black as Night. Oh, is it? Well, Chaos War is um, the god of chaos comes down, and oh, he's just brought all these dead characters with them. Oh. That's how you get, like, Chaos War X-Men, it's all the dead X-Men, Chaos War Dead Avengers. There's actually a series called Chaos War Dead Avengers. <laughs> but you know, like, that, that's Black as Night. That's insanely a rip-off of Black's Knights. The fact they're doing it again right. is um, either ballsy or creatively bankrupt, and I'm not quite sure which. Um, so I'm, I'm really, like, I'm looking forward to seeing how that com- turns out. Right. Um, what else am I looking forward to? I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, Darwin Cook does. Seeing as this, isn't this not his year off from Parker and his year to do something else? Uh, I think that sounds right. I think uh, that sounds that, right. I'd yeah. be really curious to see what he's going to do. Uh mm-hmm. Looking forward to the long-awaited end of Joe the Barbarian. <laughs> Looking forward to New Casanova and seeing what it's like. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what else. I think that's enough to be going on with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is. And it's one of those things where it's like I'd like to sit down and make a, a list because I know that there's a bunch of stuff that I'm looking forward to. And it's one of those horrible, like, I look around at my bookshelves and I'm like, ah... Uh, 
I've got old volumes of Defenders. Like, this is not help clue me into to what necessarily is coming out. Exactly. Are they doing a Defenders book this year? Right, uh, exactly. <laughs> I'm, again, like, more wonky than actually really wanting to read. I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens to Superman and Batman. Uh, so, mm. uh, Superman and Wonder Woman, rather. Mm, uh, right. Post-GMS. Right. Yeah, that would be... That will be really interesting. I think the post-GMS handoff, they're... There's a lot of signs to be excited about that, I think. Yeah, no, exactly. So, um, yeah, there's dudes that, like, Paul Cornell, I'd really like to see what Cornell's going to end up doing at DC, because I think he's kind of... Mm, his work is seems to be... It's interesting because it seems to me like he's not fully developed yet. I, I feel like his work, his talent is still gelling, I think, in comics. Uh, and so I'll be very curious to see if he finds a place in the DCU um, that suits him. Because I feel like he's kind of there, but not quite yet, you know. And I think he could end up doing... He's either going to end up continuing to do, like, really competent work, um, but I, I'd like to believe that he's got something really stellar uh, up his sleeve. No, I, I, I agree. So. I, I, I think that um, Cornell has the potential to be someone really, really, really big for DC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just remind me, what I'm looking forward to more than any comic this year yes. is the next Doctor Who season. Ah, yeah. Because yeah, the, yeah, Chris- yeah. the Christmas episode, I honestly think, was almost perfect. That's what I've been hearing. Like, there have been um, very was, few naysayers. It was just really, really, really well done. And it really reinforced what Moffat has done right Mm-hmm. with the character and with the series especially after what Russell Davis has done for the last few years um, and so I, I'm really and also the, the teaser trailer for the next season was again just like pitch perfect really? well the, the whole thing is well BBC America's whole thing is it, the, I think three episodes are shot in America mm-hmm uh, and so the teaser trailer is well. There's two teaser trailers. One is like you know, the, the, here's clips of everything that's happening in the season, which they always do. And there's one where uh, is the doctor talking to the audience, and he's like, "I've been to many places, but here I am in the most perfect place in the world, Paris, France." And his little companion person comes on, and she's like, "It's actually America." <laughs> and it's just like it's fun. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a silly. This ridiculously mm-hmm. joke, but it, there's just something about it that you're like, I like these people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I will watch these people. These people are going to tell me a fun story. I will watch it. Right, right. But no, so um, if, if there if you're, um, I have no idea if it's on iTunes or not. But the Doctor Christmas special, if you're still in a Christmasy mood, uh, is great as a standalone episode. Yeah, I and a lot of people, I think I saw someone who was saying, sort of the same way that you were saying, like, just jump on at season five. Somebody was like, I swear to God, just, just watch the Christmas special and then go back and watch season five and you'll be set. You'll yes. be hooked. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I very well may. Although if you do that, you will ruin at least two massive plot points for season five. If I watch the Christmas, Christmas special first? first? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I may or may not do that then. Uh, interestingly enough, I ended up, I, I mentioned this very briefly on Twitter, but, uh, you know, buying a lot of MP3s through the through Amazon's 
digital download store, they kept giving me like these credits for Amazon's video on yeah, demand. And you got The Walking Dead. I did. I did. They had it for only five bucks and I had eight bucks in credit. So I literally got it for zip every for nothing more than the inevitable pain and hassle of installing their proprietary player and trying to watch it. So I'm kind of looking forward to checking that out. Uh, and then hopefully I will have some sort of report about that. If not by the next time we talk, then maybe the time after that. I think that's a, like a perfect plan, sir. Yes, sir. Well, so we should jump, yeah, 2 o'clock. I was going to say, yeah, we have actually been talking for three hours now, so we, we potentially should jump, especially because I promised Kate that I'd hang out with her. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Kate. Yeah, my uh, Edie has the same tendency to be like, oh, so you disappeared down the chat hole again. So, yeah, I, I think she would actually like to see me. I haven't had lunch, so... <laughs> Neither have I, but, you know, I'm, I am stunningly done with work. Um, so I think the two of us might, because Kate's taking the week off, I think the two of us might head out and have some lunch outside. Fabulous. That and, sounds yeah, great. Sounds like a good idea to me. Well, you, sir, sir, take care. You too. Uh, we'll do this next week. Again, probably more along the two to four type time, right, since this is more of a... Yeah, next week should be a, a more normal week, but but you never know. I mean, maybe not. We'll see. All right. Well, let's shoot for two to four next week, and we'll see how things go. This was great, and uh, I will uh, try and get this stuff all. It should be. Thank God, I've got Friday off. It should be really easy to get this stuff mixed, and then I will post it next week. You're doing the Lord's own work. <laughs> yes, talking about comics. <laughs> yes, that is definitely the Lord's own work, my friend. I think so too. Uh, okay. All right. Well, listen. If I don't talk to you, have a have a great New Year. Yeah. Uh, you I, know. Are you doing something fun? Uh, I'm working on Saturday. I'm just so happy to have Friday off, though. Like maybe we'll go try and see a movie of some sort. You know. Um, I, I think we want to see the King's Speech. Oh yeah, I can't really want to see that. So. Did you guys see the Black Swan? Or I'm slowly growing up. Like, no. It was pretty goofy. I'm. I'm basically thinking if I'm going to watch it, I'm going to watch it on Netflix or something. I, I don't think I, I'm going to pay for cinema. You know, we're 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 fans of the ballet, so we're like, yeah, we'll see that. Yeah, sure. And then I was just kind of like, wait, what? You know, it really was. It's a, it is a goofy film. It is really, it's it. I think it will end up being a classic camp masterpiece. In it's that it, it does not. It's Showgirls. Yes, actually, there, it is so ridiculously like if someone was like watched Showgirls and was like, yeah, Showgirls would have been great if it had just been directed by Roman Polanski, you know, like that's kind of uh, it's kind of where they're going at it with from. I think it there there were part, it's it's watchable. Um, it's but the enjoyment sometimes comes more from. Um, working in opposition to the narrative as opposed to for it, I guess, you mm-hmm. know, there's just some stuff that, I mean, I do like the fact that Aronofsky really, really committed to what he was trying to do, but it's kind of a shame that it's kind of by the same guy who did Requiem for a Dream in a way, because Requiem for a Dream is one of those movies that that shakes the shit out of you and really shouldn't, because you kind of know going in in a way, and Black Swan's just the opposite. Black Swan is also a movie where he's like, I'm going to knock your fucking socks off. And you kind of walk out of it going, wow, that tried really hard, didn't it? You know, whereas Requiem for a Dream really works. 
So I'll be kind of curious to see where he's going tonally. I'm <laughs> where he's going tonally. Don't forget is the next Wolverine movie. Well, which could be perfect for him, frankly. Uh, it, it could end up being deeply satisfying because the Black Swan, even at the parts where it was abysmally dopey, it wasn't dull. Like even <laughs> even you know what I mean? Like it was it wasn't, boring. It really wasn't. I got to give it credit for that. There were and there were parts where it should because frankly, there's no second act in the Black Swan. The biggest problem with the Black Swan is it's basically act one done twice and then he gets to the third act and shows you it. So by the time you get to the the finale, you're like, okay, finally, let's have something fucking happen here because everything that he had done, it created a good sense of oppression really for those first two acts, but it also was kind of, it would have been stultifying if it hadn't been made with um, a, a tremendous amount of talent, but it's largely misdirected talent. So, you know, frankly, when you see the fact that he's doing a movie called The Wolverine, it seems to me like misdirected talent is the best you can hope for. So, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. You, you almost made The Wolverine sound good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be the last time that happens. Exactly. I can all but assure you. I don't know.